Life Church podcast. Today we're carrying on in our first Peter summer sermon series where we're talking about true grace. And today we're looking at how Jesus Christ inside of us is our hope and our glory. We have been begotten again to a living hope. So open your Bibles, open to first Peter chapter one, verse three to twelve. Let's read along together. It's gonna be good. They're trying to rack my brain thinking of a joke that I could share, and the only one I could think of was a, a kid's joke. So I don't know if there's any kids in the room, but uh, anybody, you know Pikachu? How did the bus driver get Pikachu on the bus? He poked him on. <laughs> if you're into Pokemon and stuff like that, that's pretty good. I don't, I don't know. Maybe you have to tell your kids that or something. They're going to laugh. <laughs> I thought that was good. Anyways, I'm trying to compose myself here for a minute. <laughs> Uh, we're going uh, to carry on today with uh, 1 Peter. Today we're going to look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 12. So if you've got your Bible or your phone or whatever, I've got to turn this off. I'm looking at myself on here, and it's really freaking me out. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 12, if you want to follow along. But um, we're going to talk today about hope, and we're going to talk about glory. We're going to talk about how Jesus Christ is our hope, and he is our glory. Uh, but first, I want to do a little, uh, a little recap of last week. I don't know if you watched last week, if you were here, but it was fantastic. I thought it was really, really good. And I'm not just saying that because Pastor Carl is my boss, but it was really, really good. <laughs> I think the way that he framed uh, First Peter for us, I think, actually kind of lifts it out of the pages and makes it prophetic. It makes us really relevant to the times that we're living in. And uh, I, I was really, really blessed last week, and particularly his, his discussion about context. So there's a few things that I wanted to bring up today just about context. And uh, he, he said that if you, uh, if you take text, if you imagine the word context and you take the text out of it, you're left with a con. And unfortunately, sometimes that can happen when you're either listening to information, uh, maybe on TV, or you're reading your Bible, in any, in any context. If you take the text out of context, you're going to end up being fooled. And uh, so it's a very helpful thing when you go to read the Bible or, or just uh, process life in general. Just use a little bit of critical thought and consider the context of what you're hearing, right? So we want to apply that to the Bible. And in the idea of the context of First Peter, there was three things that Pastor Carl talked about. There was an author, an audience, and an application. I personally also believe that the, the book was written by the Apostle Peter. I think there's a certain honesty in the Bible. I know it, like back in the day it was very, uh, very uh, okay. It wasn't like copyright law for somebody to say, I'm Peter and I'm writing in Peter's name. That was actually something that was for some reason acceptable and okay. But I think there's a certain honesty in the scriptures when it says Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, I think I think it was Peter. So we got to think when we're reading this book and we're listening and we're, we're going through it, this is the same Peter that you see in the Gospels. This is the same Peter who's like, you know, running at the guy and chopping his ear off. This is the same Peter who can't fish very good. It's the same Peter who on the day of Pentecost stood up and said, hey, this is that. This is what the prophet Joel spoke about. It's the same Peter who denied Jesus and then came back just a couple weeks later and said, hey, you guys killed him. Such a transformation in this guy's life. So, I mean, significant person. Absolutely significant. And what God has done through his life and obviously using him to write eternal scripture. I mean, what's coming to us is coming to us, obviously inspired by the Holy Spirit, but from a pretty significant person. So it comes from Peter, and it's written to a particular audience. And this, uh, th this hopefully isn't too controversial for you, but the Bible, it really wasn't written to you, but it was written for you. 
And I think when you embrace that, then it's a, it's a lot easier to understand some of the things in it that are a little bit awkward. Because uh, it says right up, Peter's like, I'm writing this to the, the saints, to the, to the scattered people abroad in all these different places. And he was writing to particular people at a particular time. And uh, he says, scattered believers, peripodemos. And the idea there is that he's writing to believers who are uh, kind of like pilgrims, like uh, the old word, I guess, in my King James Version would be sojourners, or people who are on a pilgrimage. They're on their way. They're passing through, but they're not like just on the 401 and gone. They're like passing through, but still in relationship with the people that they're around. So th there's this idea of, uh, well, well, it's kind of like us, to be honest. Jesus said we're in the world, but we're not of it. So he's writing to those people who are engaged in a, in a relationship with the world around them that perhaps doesn't necessarily hold their values or share their faith in Jesus. And their life expression isn't one that's shaped by the faith of the Son of God. And I don't know if you ever feel that way, uh, maybe in the times that we live in or, or in any particular setting or situation of your life where you felt like, you know, my faith in Jesus kind of makes me stand out a little bit. I don't feel like I fit in. I kind of feel like I'm bumping up against the edges of a culture or a people or relationships with people who maybe don't share the same values as me or maybe don't share the same faith as me. And sometimes that can be awkward, if we're honest. Sometimes that can be a little bit strange. So Peter's writing to people who are experiencing this tension and this friction in their lives. And I really appreciated last week how Pastor Carl said, you know, there's, there's a couple different responses you can have when you find yourself in that situation. You can, you can withdraw from culture. You can say, all right, you know what? I'm having nothing to do with anybody. I'm just going to go live on my farm out where I live, which <laughs> that's not what I'm doing, but... <laughs> That's, a, that's an option, right? You can totally withdraw. You can get really militant and you can be like, I'm against everybody and everything and you just fight against everything and you, you go to war with culture. You can just say, yeah, whatever, I'm just going to blend in. And then I love Pastor Carl's fourth option here was to express true grace to culture. And that's what we're going to talk a little bit today. But just, a, just another example about how context matters. And uh, I, I'm not trying to say anything right here. I'm just trying to highlight the context and the need to appreciate context. But listen to this from 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do good. So there's a, there's a pretty strong admonition from the Apostle Peter. But taken into context, even Peter didn't follow this advice outside of context. I don't know if you remember, but in Acts chapter 5, the apostles, the church are growing. The, the apostles are doing signs and wonders and miracles and significant things are happening. And the, the apostles, and the, they get put in jail and they get beaten and they get commanded by the authorities, don't speak in the name of Jesus. And Peter and the apostles, their response was, we ought to obey God rather than men. So there's context. Even Peter here, when he's saying, submit yourselves to the ordinance of men, there's context. Another contextual difficulty that I think the church in our culture right now is wrestling with is this. We don't have a king. We don't live in a totalitarian regime. We live in a 21st century, I'd argue hyper-modern, uh, parliamentary democracy, where the church, when we're wrestling with issues that they were wrestling with in their time, our approach is going to be significantly different. Because we're, we're involved in a process where our participation in political life is, is, is solicited. It's encouraged. We live in a democracy. So, there, I mean, there's a certain sense where people in Peter's time had some issues that they had to work out in the context of their time and their setting. 
we likewise have something as individuals and as churches to figure out in the context of our time and our setting. And that's just a couple examples of why context is so important. Because if you just kind of take something out of the scriptures divorced from context, you might be trying to apply a first century Roman construct to a 21st century Canadian scenario, and it might not necessarily work. And like I said, I'm not trying to say anything there other than pay attention to context because it's really, really important. Irregardless of any of this stuff, though, I think that what, what Peter said and what, what Pastor Carl mentioned last week as an appropriate response to culture, any culture, in any time, in any setting, in any scenario, is to express true grace in that culture. And that's where the application side of context comes. The, the, the application that Peter was trying to get the people of God to engage in was this, the idea that true grace works. True grace gets results. And true grace, actually, it works. It's energized. It's, it's moving. It's producing something. But it will get results, and it will win the day. So 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 12, he says, By Silvanus, our faithful brother as I consider him, I've written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is, in fact, the true grace of God in which you stand. And that's what Peter wrote this book for. He wrote this book to explain to all these people who find themselves living in situations that they had to wrestle their way through. Hostile culture where they didn't know, how do I fit? How do I live out my faith in this, in this situation, in this time, and in this setting? He's writing to them and he's saying, you know what? This is the grace of God in which you stand. And this is how you can live as a, as a pilgrim, as a scattered believer in the midst of a, what, what at times would be a hostile culture. So I want to also suggest to you, though, that also as well as context in terms of uh, the times, the dates, the places, the, the, you know, those kind of things, there's always a spiritual context to what's going on in our lives. And, you know, if you, if you can grasp and understand the spiritual context of what's happening in your world, I'll tell you what, a lot of things that go on in your life will make a lot more sense. Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 to 11, Paul said that for this reason also, since the day we heard it, we do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. There's, a, there's an understanding of the will and the purpose and the plan of God for our lives that if we embrace it and if we understand it and if we know it, it provides context for all the stuff that God's doing in our world. And uh, you know what? That's going to really, really help us when we, when we read the rest of 1 Peter, because there's some things in 1 Peter that, I mean, it's going to get really practical. It's going to get really down to earth. He's going to say things like, be holy as your Father in heaven is holy. And, uh, you know, if you don't have a, a proper understanding of what that means and what God is trying to bring about in your life and how he's trying to do that, you can hear those kind of things and really turn it into a, a religious pursuit. But here's the thing. Here's what the grace, see, he said in verse, chapter 1, verse 2, he said, there is grace and peace multiplied to you. God has a purpose, a plan, and a context for your lives, and his grace is working in us unto his eternal purpose, and understanding that purpose, and waking up even on a daily basis and embracing it, I'm telling you, is going to provide incredible structure and clarity to your life. If you know that what he's doing is this, he has sent his grace multiplied into your life in order to establish us in a relationship with himself. And that through that relationship that we have with him in Jesus Christ, to reveal his wisdom and his glory through us to the rest of the whole of the creation. Isn't that amazing? 
I mean, that is the purpose and the plan of God for the church, for the people of God, for any individual life. It was to take us, to lift us, and to elevate us, to sit on the very throne of God with him, if you can believe that. That's crazy. But it says in Ephesians that we've been raised up and seated together with him in heavenly places. God's plan was to take us and elevate us, join us together with him, give himself totally, completely to us, and then through us to reveal himself to the world around us. That is the plan and the purpose of God. That is the context of 1 Peter. That is what he's trying to do in our lives, and that's why grace and peace are being multiplied into our lives and into our world today. And that was true in Peter's time, and it's true in our time as well. And it's really important to get this. Otherwise, some of the themes in 1 Peter, like suffering, I mean, some of that's just not going to make sense unless you understand that God's trying to do something specific in our lives. See, his grace, his mercy, his love, his self-giving of himself towards us, it's unto something. It's not just kind of a, an amorphous blob of sentiment that comes to us and God just says, you know what, whatever's good for you is good for me. He's trying to bless us by bringing us into union with himself, by getting us to accept the reality of what Jesus Christ has done. And then when we do, he wants to unpack the reality of that in our lives. So his grace, his truth, his goodness, it's flowing to us. It's abounding towards us unto the release of the life of Jesus in us and the life of Jesus through us in order to explain and to demonstrate to the whole of the world who God really is and what he's really like. And that is the purpose of God. That is the purpose of God in Peter's day, and it's the purpose of God in our time. So I want to just explain a few things. I just want to go through a couple of verses here in 1 Peter, uh, starting at verse 3, and just kind of unpack the dynamics of how this works. Because I think this, these first 11 verses here, I think this is what Peter's doing. I think he's trying to establish in the hearts of the people who are hearing, this is what God wants to do, and this is how he wants to do it. And it's going to, again, like I said, going to be very important because he's going to get extremely practical. He's going to give some very uh, clear instructions that, again, if we don't understand, it's part and parcel of the release of grace in and through us, it could really send your head in a, in a religious uh, spiral. So uh, listen to this. First Peter chapter 1, verse 3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I love that. I, I love that because when he says that, he's, he's like, he's immediately saying, you know, the God that I'm talking to you about, it's not one of the gods in your culture. It's not one of those idols. It's not one of those things that somebody's created. It's not like the, the universe up there. It's not like this personless God, this force. He's saying, no, the God that I'm talking about, he's the known and the knowable God who's defined himself in and through Jesus Christ. He's the one that Jesus came to reveal. He's the one that we know because of Jesus. And this God, this God, no other, this God has acted on our behalf. And what he did for us, it says he has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Sometimes the word of God just deserves a clap. Thank you. You can't get any better than the actual word of God, eh? begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We have been begotten again, better word for it, born again, made new, raised up into new life, joined together with Christ. Paul said it in Ephesians 2, 4 to 7. He said, but God, and it talks about his mercy there, he says, has made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. There it is, grace. And he's raised us up together and made us to sit together with him in heavenly places that in the ages to come, the incredible riches of his grace towards us in Christ might be fully on display. 
Isn't that amazing? That's fantastic. He has made us alive together in Christ. That's what the God who's been revealed to us through Jesus Christ, that's what he did. He made us alive. He, he recreated us. He raised us up. He joined us together and put us together with Christ. And in that, there is a hope. There is a hope in our share in the resurrection life of Jesus Christ that you can't find anywhere else. It doesn't exist anywhere else. It doesn't even exist in the Christian religion. It exists in our share of the life of Christ within us. We've been begotten again to a living hope through the resurrection, not even through a promise of God rearranging the deck chairs of the external circumstances of our lives, but there is a hope for us that springs up within us because of our share in Christ's life. How good is that? That's something that can't be taken from you. That's something that can never be stolen. So how does, this, how does this help scattered believers in a hostile world? And how does being begotten again to a living hope, how does that help us? Well, exactly like I said, he has raised us up with Christ, made us to sit with him in heavenly places. And now the hope that we have is that he lives inside of us. Colossians 1 verse 27, Christ in us, the hope of glory. The hope that we have, the living hope that we all live with now is that the lives that we live, the relationships we have, the type of people that we are, the influence that we have, the jobs we do, the conditions of our worldly affairs, whether it's, you know, finances or anything else, the capacity we have in our relationships, the quality of our relationships, the quality of our relationship with, with the people that are significant in our lives, it's all built by, it's sustained by, and it's created through the resurrection life of Christ. And I'll tell you what, if you build a life, if there's a life of Christ expressing through you that builds a life for you, that is a hope that can't be shaken. That is a foundation that can never be removed. And what is being built through your life is something completely and entirely, eternally secure and significant. And that's the hope that we've been given. The hope that we have is not necessarily that God's going to change the details of the hostile culture around us. The hope that we have is in the middle of it and in the midst of it, something of Christ's nature and substance can express itself through us by our faith that builds something, that builds something of substance in us and in our community and in the church. Something of substance that reveals the manifold wisdom of God, that reveals the kindness and the goodness and the grace of God, that reveals the love of God. And that is the hope that we have. So I want to encourage you today. Hope. There is a living hope and he lives inside of you. I want to encourage you today. Maybe you, you, you know, you're down, you're frustrated. I don't know what's going on in your world, but maybe you need some hope. Maybe you need some revision. Maybe you need some revisioning. You need to see some things a little bit differently. I want to encourage you today to find hope in the resurrected life of Christ inside of you and not in your circumstances. You will be perpetually disappointed if you're constantly looking for things on the outside to work itself out. But Jesus said something revolutionary. He said to the Jewish people, you know what? The kingdom of God, it doesn't come with signs to be observed. It's not going to come in the external signs around you. The kingdom of God is within and yeah, that kingdom within you, it's meant to come out of you. And what does change in the world is meant to be a, a, a cause of the effect that is the release of Christ inside of us. So let's put our faith and trust in the living one who lives inside of us. Let's put our faith and our trust in the resurrection, resurrected life, the indestructible life of the resurrected king who death couldn't hold down, the devil couldn't defeat, there's no sin in the world that could stop him, there's no sickness that could hold him down. That is our hope. Let's not put our hope in the externals. Let's hope in Christ, a begotten, internal hope. 
He also says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse, uh, verse 3 and 4, he says that we've been begotten to a living hope, but we've also been begotten again, born again, raised up into an inheritance. An inheritance that's incorruptible, undefiled. It, it does not fade away, and it's reserved in heaven for you. So we've been raised into an inheritance, ones that's not found in the hostile world around us. It's an inheritance that's not like anything else in the world. It's an inheritance that's not gained or acquired or accessed like earthly inheritances are. This inheritance, it can't be threatened or stolen by lawsuit or even a lockdown. It can't be dwindled away by taxes and theft, and it's not subject to the conditions of decay and rot and loss. There is an inheritance for you and for me that's stored up for us in heaven, reserved in heaven, undefiled, incorruptible. It doesn't fade away. That word reserved, it's a, it's a strong word. It's a, it's a military word. It says this is guarded for you. This is under guard. It can't be taken. It can't be stolen. It can't be tampered with. You have access to an incredible inheritance. And if I can define it for you as this, it's this. Genesis chapter 15, God said to Abraham, I am your shield and your exceedingly great reward. I have an inheritance that's a share in the life and the glory and the person, the power, the majesty of Jesus Christ. I have a share in that life that I can make withdrawals from. I can, by faith in the power of the Holy Spirit, I can manifest an aspect of the life and the power of Christ, the likes of which has not been seen before. That is my inheritance reserved for me in heaven. I mean, we can think about it in terms of mansions and gold and all that stuff if you like, but I would encourage you to consider the inheritance you have as a share in the glory of Jesus Christ himself. We have access to that. That is what is reserved in heaven for us. That is something that we can plug into right now. And Peter's trying to say to people, don't worry about your hostile culture. You've got a living hope inside of you. It's Christ Jesus, and that is your inheritance that is reserved in heaven for you, and it cannot be touched. It cannot be tampered with. It cannot be robbed or stolen, and it will not fade away. And then it gets better. He says, not only is this inheritance guarded, guaranteed, protected under guard in heaven, but he says, you yourself are guarded. You yourself are protected, preserved, and guarded. First Peter chapter 1, verse 5, he talks about you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Come on, it gets better. You've got a living hope. It's Christ inside of you, the hope of glory. You've got an inheritance that can't be tampered with that is the very glory of God itself. And now your ability to participate in that is protected and preserved by the power of God itself. How good is that? You can't be messed with. You can't be tampered with. You can't lose it. You can't lose yourself. The power of God is keeping you. See, it says in Ephesians that we're saved by grace through faith. We're kept by power through faith. It's not my faith that saves me. It's not my faith that keeps me. It's the power of God that keeps me. It's the grace of God that saves me. But by my faith, I'm accessing it. And I'm, I'm laying hold of it and I'm participating in it. So faith's important. Don't hear me say that faith doesn't matter. But I'll tell you what, put your faith in the power of God to keep you. That's where we need to direct our faith. Not in our own ability to keep ourselves, but our faith needs to be directed in him who can keep me. So that all these things that he's destined for us, a living hope that he's given us, and an eternal inheritance in the share of the glory of Jesus Christ himself is ours. We can't fall from it. We can't lose it because his great power is keeping us. Good news, eh? Now, this is just a little rabbit trail, but I'm just going to, I got 30 seconds, so why not? It says we're kept by faith through the power, kept by the power of God through faith for salvation to be revealed in the last time. 
and I'm not saying this is the way it is, but I'm saying this is a thought. Those words last time there, it's eschatos kairos. Eschatos kairos. You might notice the word eschatos as in eschatology, as in last time, last days. Peter's saying you're kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Now that you know there's a, an appropriate application of that where in my last time, when I step out of this life and I step into the next, that could be my last time and there's salvation ready to be revealed. But what if he's also saying to a generation of people, have hope. What if he's saying the power of God is keeping you and preserving you for a time like this? Because at a time at the end, at the eschatos kairos, there's a full deep revelation of the salvation of God that I'm going to express through you in a way that hasn't been seen before. See, Ephesians chapter 1, it talks about how we have the Spirit of God as a down payment of our inheritance to come. What if at the end, what if in an eschatos kairos, where there's a generation of people, there's a church that's destined in that moment to, to manifest a little bit more of that down payment in order to, the Bible talks about tasting of the powers of the age to come. What if there's a church, what if there's a generation that says, that's us? What if we find ourselves in the book and we say, that's us, that's our generation? What if there's a hope for us in our times? See, Peter, when the Holy Spirit was poured out at Pentecost, he stood up and with incredible boldness, he said, this is that. This is what the prophet prophesied. This is the coming of the Spirit of God being poured out on all flesh. He had such incredible insight into the times in which he lived in. Could it not be possible? Could it not be possible that that might also be us? Could it not be possible that some of us might rise up with incredible faith and say, this is that. This is our time. This is our time to manifest something of that inheritance, the likes of which has never been seen before. Something of the salvation of God that is dynamic and powerful and the full realization, the full application of the salvation won for us at the cross. Why not, right? Why not? I mean... <laughs> There's a tendency to draw back and not talk that way because a lot of people thought they were the last generation, right? History is littered with people who thought they were the last. But somebody's going to be. Somebody will be. Somebody is. So we got a living hope. We got hope in the life of Christ inside of us in so many ways and for so many reasons. We've got an inheritance. We've got a promise of being kept by God's power. And Peter says in 1 Peter 1.6, he says, In this you greatly rejoice. Man, you understand this stuff. It makes you happy. In this you greatly rejoice. I'm happy, Stephen, as well. I'm happy. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you've been grieved by various trials. Now, I don't like that. I don't like if need be. I don't like grievous trials. I don't like that stuff. It says if it's necessary. I don't like that either. But here's the thing. God has a defined purpose and agenda for our lives. He does. There's no two ways about it. There's something that he wants to work out in us. The Bible describes it in so many different ways. He wants to give us his grace that through us his grace might be revealed. He wants to establish us in union with his son, which he has done, and he wants the expression of his son through us. He has a purpose and he has an agenda. And if we embrace that, it will mean at times that we will look, act, think, make decisions, participate in life in a way that is totally different than the people and the culture around us. I don't know if you've ever found that true. I know I asked that already, but uh, maybe, maybe you have. Maybe you've, you've had friction in family relationships because you've made decisions out of your authentic faith in Jesus, and that's brought conflict into your world. 
Not because you've sought conflict, but just because it's happened. Two different cultures, two different kingdoms, two different value sets are rubbing up against each other. The Bible says that if you've got Christ inside of you, to those who are saved and have life, you are the aroma of life, but to others, you stink like death. Sometimes that happens. Sometimes the life of Christ inside of us produces a reaction in the people around us. Sometimes it's pleasant, sometimes it's not. But when you live this way, when the life of Christ expresses itself through you in a way that's different, perhaps, from what's in the world, sometimes it does and it will invite persecution, difficulty, tribulation, and grievous trials. And so here's the problem that the people that Peter was writing to had. And you can see it in, we, we talked about it already. He's saying, you know what, I want you to obey the authorities. And uh, Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 2, he says, I want you to pray for kings and all those in authority. I want you to live a peaceable and a quiet life. So there's this instruction to the church of God. You know what, I want you to live, I want you to be good citizens. We want you to, to live peaceable, quiet lives. Like, don't get involved in the crazy Jewish rebellions that are going on in Israel. Don't get involved in all that stuff. Like, do good. Don't get persecuted for doing evil. Get persecuted for doing good. So um, this, is, this is just a little snapshot about what life would have been like for these believers. So there's this massive emphasis of, of being good citizens, of doing good things. But this is, this is from N.T. Wright in his book, Paul. And this is writing about the, the world that Paul and Peter and the early Christians lived in. So he says this, Worshipping the gods, the great pantheon of Greek and Roman gods, with plenty of others added on here and there, permeated every aspect of life in Paul and, by extension, Peter's world. For the Christians to pull back from that, to not engage in the worship of those gods, and to worship the living God instead was far more than the equivalent of, say, in the modern West, giving up gambling and attending church once a week. The demands of following Jesus were so much greater back then. It would mean different action and patterns of life in every hour of every day. He says, perhaps the only way we can imagine such a thing in today's secular world is to think what it would be like to give up all of our usual machines and conveniences. Give up your car, give up your cell phone, cooking equipment, central heating, air conditioning. He says, you would literally in that world have to do everything differently and only so much more. He says, in this world, the gods were everywhere and involved in everything. In the ancient world, whether you were at home, on the street, whether you were in public square, attending festivals, or at moments of crisis or joy, weddings, funerals, heading off on a journey, the gods would be there to be acknowledged, appealed to, appeased, or placated. And N.C. Wright says, once the message of Jesus took hold, all that would have to go, and the neighbors would notice. That's the world that these guys are living in. They're living in a world that's absolutely steeped in idolatry and immorality. It's become a fab, part of the fabric of the very lives in which they lived. These guys were, had to, you know, if you wanted a good job, you had to be a member of a trade guild. And in order to be a part of the trade guild, you'd have to engage in some sort of ceremonial worship. You'd have to effectively deny Jesus. There was all the, the, the spiritual idolatry that was going on, worshiping at temples, the pressure to engage in eating things that were sacrificed to idols. And if you understand, like Acts 15, the apostles were saying, we don't want to make it hard for people. We don't, we're not going to give you 613 laws to follow. There's just two things we're going to ask. But those two things were embedded in like the fabric of society itself. So herein was the problem that the people that Peter was writing to, here's the problem that they faced. They sought the peace and the prosperity of the leadership and society in which they lived, yet by their exclusive worship and devotion to Jesus Christ, they stood out. They were persecuted. 
they were relegated to the margins of society. They were scapegoated when things went wrong. Pastor Carl mentioned that last week, how Nero blamed the Christians when he burned Rome down. Oftentimes, they were excluded from trade. You might have heard or read about that in the book of Revelation with this thing called the Mark of the Beast. Without it, you couldn't buy, sell, or trade. They were relegated to the margins of society and put in a situation where unless you're going to engage in this type of idolatry, you are not going to be able to buy anything from me. You're not going to be able to buy food for your family. They were kicked out of social gatherings. They had no access to good jobs in any place in the public sphere, eventually leading to banishment, imprisonment, the plundering of their goods, and even death. And albeit some places were worse than others, but Peter's writing to believers in a whole bunch of different places, probably Turkey, the size of Turkey, like just a massive uh, geographical area. But this is the life conditions that these people lived in. And that's why Peter says, you know, if need be, if need be, not that God needs to test you and try you, not that he's, you know, a little uncertain about your faith or anything like that, but he's saying, you know what, if you must face these things, if you must face the persecution that's brought on to you by your refusal to participate in life at that level, and you're going to live out an authentic faith, if you need to suffer for that, so be it. He says, if that's what happens, go for it. In order that the genuineness of your faith, this is 1 Peter 1 verse 7, being much more precious than gold that perishes though it's tested by the fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love. When Jesus is revealed, he assures them. He says, you know what? If you, in living your authentic faith, your confession of Jesus Christ as Lord means that you're going to go through some of these grievous trials. Like, not somebody's going to stare at you funny at the grocery store. Like, somebody's going to steal all your stuff and kill your loved ones. If you're going to go through that, don't worry. He says that the revealing of Jesus, it's going to be found to praise, honor, and glory. All the stuff you think you lost all the things that feel temporal and so significant right now that make you feel like you've lost so many things and which, you know, fair play you have. God has a redemption and a reward and he has a plan to bring it all back into your life at the revealing of Jesus. I think that's pretty good. I think that's a living hope. I think that's encouraging. I hope it never comes to that. <laughs> I hope it really doesn't, but we got brothers and sisters in the world who live that way. We got brothers and sisters throughout the, the world who that is their, their scenario. We have people from, you know, even Eastern European places where they have experienced the, the, the persecution of being a believer in Jesus Christ. And you know what? The promise is you're going to see this all throughout the book of he, uh, Peter. Eventually, he's going to say, when the spirit, of, the spirit of glory and of Christ is going to rest on you. Don't suffer as being an evildoer. Don't suffer as a murderer, as a busybody in people's affairs. Don't suffer as the instigator of rebellion. But he is going to say, if you suffer as a Christian, the spirit of glory and of Christ rests on you. Amen. Come on. Amen. He lays out in practical terms now how we're going to be able to access this. He talks about a living hope. He talks about the inheritance. He talks about being kept by the power of God. And then he lays out an incredibly practical process by which we access this hope, access this inheritance, and live in the confidence of being kept by the power of God. 1 Peter 1 verse 8, he says, Though you do not see him, you believe. Though not seeing him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. And you receive the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. He boils it all down to this, the ultimate how-to. All the wonderful, beautiful things he's just promised them. All the, the, the glory he has in the share of the life of Christ. He says, here's how you get it. Faith in the resurrected Christ and our share in that same life. 
And if anybody should be confused, if anybody wasn't certain about what he was talking about, if anybody had any questions, he ends this little portion of Scripture with an emphatic declaration that not only is what he's saying true and of God, but he says this is what God has always been saying, and this is what the Scriptures affirm, and this is what the angels long to look into. 1 Peter 1.10, he says, of this salvation, this salvation that I just described to you, the salvation that emerges out of Christ inside of you, your living hope, the salvation that is your eternal inheritance in Christ, of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the, get this, the grace that would come to you. The Old Testament covenant, the Old Testament prophets prophesied of grace. Searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that to, not to themselves, but to us they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who preached the gospel to you by the power of the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which even angels desire to look into. Kind of Paul saying in a cheeky way, this is where it's at. If you think otherwise, reread your Bible. He's saying, if an angel from heaven appears to you and gives you another gospel, same thing Paul said, don't listen. This is where it's at. Christ and his resurrected life is your hope and is your glory. There is no hope and there is no glory in nothing else. So I would, I would reiterate again a little bit about what Stephen said at the offering teaching. I would encourage us today to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, to let him become the source of hope in our lives. He is, whether we know it or not. The hope of glory in your life is Jesus, the resurrected one inside of you. The hope that you have for a changed and a transformed world. Maybe you've got a relationship. Maybe you've got a life scenario. There's something in your world you want differently. We can certainly pray and ask God to come and bring transformation to it, and we should. God does that kind of thing. But I'm telling you, predominantly, the purpose of God is to bring transformation and hope for glory in our world through the expression of Jesus inside of us. And I'll tell you what, that's not a difficult religious process. That doesn't happen through the embracing of principles and rules and doctrine and dogma. That comes through faith and trust in Jesus Christ and the power of his grace loosed and released on the inside of us. Peter's going to describe that. He's going to say, this is what grace looks like. It looks like be holy in all your conduct. It looks like do this. It looks like don't do that. But it's all an expression of grace. And that's to which we've been called, to stand in the true grace of God. Amen? Amen. That's what I got for you today, guys. If I can encourage you. Maybe let's, uh, let's stand up together, if you will. If you can, if you're able. I don't know about you guys. I had a good day today. I feel like Jesus is here. We've got people here today as well who will pray for you if you need prayer. We've got socially distanced uh, prayer markers here. We've got prayer teams. So I'd invite those guys who are praying to come on up. And if you need prayer ministry today, to uh, uh, feel free. Online, we've got the, uh, the Zoom prayer room. You can go to impactlondon.ca. You can go to our all-access pass. There'll be a Zoom room opened up, and there'll be private confidential Zoom rooms where you can get prayer by um, some anointed and trained people. But the Lord is here. I just want to give this opportunity. If there's anybody here, either maybe you're watching online or you're here in the building and you've never, you know, accepted Jesus and you've never been able to say, Lord, I accept you as my life. You can be the hope of life inside of me. I want to invite you just at the count of three, just to put your hand up. Everybody, if you wouldn't mind, just close your eyes, bow your head. Give people a, a moment of privacy here. 
But if that's you, just raise your hand. Ready? One, two, three. Just like that. I don't think I'm seeing anybody. But just in case there's somebody online, go to impactlondon.ca. Go on the Connect card. Let us know if what you want to do is embrace Jesus Christ as your hope in your life. And I'm going to pray for all of you right now. And if that's you here today, just say, pray, say amen, engage the prayer. But I'll tell you what, God's here to do something significant. So, Father, we thank you. I thank you so much for the gift of your son. I thank you that he is our life. He is our living hope. And I pray, Father, that the release of resurrection life in the hearts and the minds of every believer here would be poignant, would be felt, would be tangible, would be demonstrable this week. I pray, Lord, if there's areas where hope has disappeared, I pray, Father, that in the revealing of Jesus Christ to our hearts, there would be the restoration of hope. I pray for a renewal of strength and energy. I pray for eyes that are fixed firmly on Jesus, that understand him as the hope of glory in our lives and in our world. So we bless you, Father. I thank you for the love that you have for each one of us. Bless this house. Bless everybody attached to it, we pray, Father, in Jesus' mighty name. And we thank you for engaging us today. We thank you for your presence. We honor you for the way you've blessed us today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, guys, thanks. I'm going to ask you if you are on your way out, for those of you who are not availing yourselves of the prayer ministry, there's the exit over there if you go out to the right. Anybody online, like I said, go to impactlondon.ca, hit up that Connect card, or go to the All Access Pass. We'd love to see you online. We've got people on there waiting for you. But God bless you all. And a Wednesday night, don't forget, if you want to come, we've got live in-person prayer meeting. We got, well, it's kind of prayer, a little bit of teaching, miracles. God is doing things. There's words of knowledge. There's healings. There's stuff happening. Wednesday night, 7 o'clock. We'll see you this week.